morning, everybody. Again, I always say this, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are, whenever you are catching us online, welcome. But you guys here in-house, you're my people. Thank you for coming out here. I love seeing your faces. Um, It means so much to me. We are so blessed to be able to gather together here in person. Um, It's something that that I always used to take for granted, and then during all these times of restrictions and everything, it's something I no longer take for granted. Our, our sister churches in California just now received permission to start gathering back together, and so after a year of not being able to gather, I can't even imagine what that would be like, but I'm so glad that you guys are here. I have, uh, I have a burden on my heart that God put uh, for this message, and and. I like to say that happens every message, and many times it does. He always gives me a word and a direction, but sometimes I just feel a, I feel a, a, it's a weight. It's not a, it's not a burden in a bad way, but it's just a a responsibility to try and transmit as best I can what I think God has given me. And this, this week, thankfully, I think he makes it easy because there's some clear direction in this message, but I want to get... I want to get into it right away. If you haven't caught any of our previous messages, wherever you are, again, you could go back. You can go through our, our website, discovercommunity.church, watch all of the back episodes uh, through our web player there. You can watch YouTube or Facebook. We've got them all there. Go back and catch some of the previous messages, especially, I think, the first handful, the first several, because it kind of lays out what's happening here. Um, and I don't want to go too deeply into that because we've got a lot to cover But let's just go back a little bit. Satan, the accuser, had had made this wager, if you will, with God. God, in fact, presented Job to Satan and said, Have you seen my servant Job? Many times people think like that, that Satan drug Job up and said, can I toy with him? It didn't work that way. Actually, God is the one who brought Job to Satan's attention. And that's something that we all kind of have to wrestle with on why would he do that? I know that he did that for a number of reasons. One is that he knew full well that Job would be able to stand against these things. Struggle with them, yes, but he would be able to stand against everything that the devil would throw against him and still maintain his integrity, still maintain his blamelessness and his trust and faith in God. God knew that ahead of time. So it was a total sucker bet on God's part. He knew that that Satan was going to lose this bet, but also God knew that through this experience, Job would be elevated to a place of, of intimacy with God and realizing maybe for the first time, how much he needed that intimacy with God. Because he had had it before. We see clear evidence that God had spoken with Job, and Job had a good relationship with God. We know that because we know that he misses it. And I think this brings him to a place where Job is now like, I will never want to go another day without hearing the Lord's voice again. How many of us take that for granted, knowing that, We have, through the Holy Spirit and what Jesus did, we can go to God every day, every minute of every day. In fact, the Bible says we should do just that. Pray without ceasing. And how many of us do? How many of us take for granted, like the churches in California that couldn't, for a whole year, couldn't meet together? We just take that for granted. 
Like we take for granted the fact that we can go and seek the Holy Spirit and hear the voice of God guiding us through life. And because we have that, I think many of us just put it on a shelf or keep that in our back pocket. No, I'll just pull it out if I need it. Job is in this place where he will, I think, never again take for granted the fact that he can have fellowship with God. And, and so that's where we are. So enough of the setup here. Last week, we saw Bildad, one of Job's friends, just pummeling away at Job. Like, these guys all just take their turns one after another after another. And if you've been following us through this series, you might be going like, man, again, how many times are we going to go through this cycle? We're almost through with the cycle of the friends coming through and talking to Job. But each one has a specific thing that I think we can take away from it. But last week, what we saw is Bildad just hammering away. And what he said, in fact, our first scripture, I just want to remind you of it, Job 18, 1 to 2. This is Bildad saying to Job, Then Bildad the Shuhite responded, How long will you hunt for words? Show understanding, and then we can talk. He's insinuating that, that Job's just trying to make up something to say. Once you really get what I'm saying, we can go ahead and talk. But these three guys... They're just like this broken record. They're just repeating the same things over and over again, maybe saying them in a different way, but they're not new thoughts. They're not fresh thoughts. In fact, they're kind of just parroting each other's thoughts. Their their cynicism had clouded their minds to the point to where not only were they unwilling to look at any other options, they were probably incapable at that point of even seeing that there could be other explanations for what's going on. And, and they hit him. Bildad hits him with these things. Your light will be extinguished forever. You'll be caught in your own web of lies. You're like a fugitive on the run. Your family line will die with you. Just hurls all these things. And Job's supposedly a friend. How do you think Bildad would speak to somebody who wasn't a friend? But then his final parting shot as Bildad's walking out the door, basically, his, the last thing he says, not even a courtesy, I hate to say this, or with all due respect. How many of you know if you hear those words, it's about to be disrespectful and, and, and terrible? Typically, so Job 18, 21, he says this, certainly these are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. He just basically comes out and says, hey, you're wicked, and this, this is your lot in life now. You don't even know God. What an accusation to hurl at somebody that we know different. Bildad didn't know different, but I don't think he cared to know different at this point. I think he was just fine being right where he was and not challenging anything he thinks. So what we see is a result of of Job battling these lies of the accuser, specifically by those who were closest to him, those ones that he was most likely, if he was going to let down his guard, it was going to be in front of these guys. But he doesn't. He's struggling to hold on to the truth as he knows it to be. But in the midst of this, all of his blessings from God, everything that he saw as a blessing from God, gone. His ability to sense God in his life, gone. And he's struggling just to hold on to his trust. In the middle of that, again, his friends aren't helping the case at all. But here's here's what these guys don't know. These three guys who are hammering away at Job, they don't know this. Job believes in God despite his lack of blessings, not because of them. And that was all the way back to the original challenge. Satan said to God, Job only likes you because you bless him with all these things. And what they don't know 
is that Job believes despite the lack of blessings. It doesn't mean he doesn't struggle with it. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, but it's not changing his belief in God. Now, we're going to, this is chapter 19 we're going to be talking about today. Just one chapter because to me, it is the shining gem right in the middle of all of the book of Job. And it is one of the most Christ-centric chapters of all. If you haven't read it in its entirety, read it in its entirety. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read or put up on screen every scripture in this chapter. So you don't have to, but there's something about you just, just pray for revelation, read it through on your own, and see what you see. But you're going to see so many things that just point and they shadow, they foreshadow a Christ and crucifixion of Christ. We see that over and over again. The things that happened to Job through this and have happened are so focused on, on, on just a shadow of who Christ is. I don't know how else to say it, but it's so amazing to see. So let's, let's get right into the text because there's so much here. Job chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. This is how Job starts out. Then Job responded, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Remember, so this is a reply to the first thing that Bildad said. How long will you hunt for words? Job says, how long will you torment me with words? It's a total mocking of Bildad's original, so there's plenty of sarcasm in here. Job 19, verses 3 and 4. These ten times you have insulted me. You are not ashamed to wrong me. Even if I have truly done wrong, my error stays with me. That phrase, 10 times, those of you who are going to go back and like try and count up the number of times, ten t- it's, a, it's a figure of speech, 10 times. There's not 10 times so far. But this could be a lesson for some of us, really. What these guys are doing is that they're seeing what's going on with Job and, and his refusal to come clean in their eyes. They're seeing it as some kind of personal attack against them. Job's like, I haven't wronged you. If if I'm wrong in everything that I'm saying, I'm the one that's going to be hurt here, not you. And yet they're acting just like they're somehow the ones who have been wronged. That church and whoever needs to hear this, that could be such a lesson for us now. So many of us take offense if the person we're talking to doesn't come to our point of view, like somehow it hurts us. If we are really convicted in our point of view, we would understand that it only hurts them if they don't come to our side. But these guys aren't that way, man. They're offering advice even when it's not asked for, and they are acting just like they're personally the injured party. Now, this is not to say that a friend should not offer correction when needed. Correction, rebuke, we are told as Christians, our brothers and sisters, we are supposed to correct many parameters around that, mostly done in love, but honest rebukes. If you're honestly going to rebuke somebody, it's patient, it's discerning, and it's, its goal is redemption. Its goal is redemption. Not to just get you to, to agree with me, but it's to redeem that person. It's to, it's to restore them. That's what an honest rebuke is, a dishonest rebuke which we see from these guys really here, is mostly just to show their moral superiority, how much they know more than he does. And it's prideful. But we still see so many of that. Now, where do you think these three guys are? Do you think they're patient, discerning, and they're looking for redemption? Or do you think really they're just trying to get Job to 
to understand that they're holier than he is, and so therefore they should listen. This idea that pride can make us think that we have to fight for what's right to the death, even if it kills the person we're sharing it with. That's not a way that, that we're called to be. But the result is we can easily see our energy being directed in places where it's really not needed or wanted. In fact, later on in verse, in verse 22, Job says, you guys are acting like God. That's not something you want to see unless it's saying you're, you're reflecting Jesus. But that's not the context he's saying that in. Job 19, verses 5 through 8. Let me just read this section to you. If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and prove my disgrace to me, know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. Behold, I cry violence. Essentially, that word means unfair, injustice. But I get no answer. I shout for help, but there's no justice. He has blocked my way so that I cannot pass, and he has put darkness on my past. The picture there is that Job is saying, look, I was on the right path. I was living my life the right way. I was walking the right path until for some reason God blocked my path and made me stray. He's actually blaming God in this point for causing him to stray, but he doesn't understand the why behind it. Job 19.9, we have that on screen. He has stripped my honor from me and removed the crown from my head. Now, Job's not saying I was a king or a prince or anything like that. He never had a really a real crown, but he's saying my, my hard-earned reputation and everything that I had has been taken away from me. We know at the very beginning of the book, it talks about Job being an upright businessman, a blameless man, and and so his reputation meant a lot, but it's been totally stripped away by now. Job 19, verses 10 through 12. Again, I'll read this to you. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. He has uprooted my hope like a tree. He has also kindled his anger against me and considered me as his enemy. His troops come together and build up their way against me and camp around my tent. This is a picture. It's just a, a mental image here. Of, of siege warfare. You know what siege warfare is? It's something that was very, it was state-of-the-art in warfare for thousands of years, and at this time it was. Armies would actually bring, if you had a, if you had a fort with walls, armies would actually bring in road crews, and they would smooth out the road so their advancing army would have an easier way to go with anything that they were pulling or their horses or anything like that. And then when they got there, they would build ramps, because siege warfare is all about time. It's all about time. How much do you have? In fact, I want to show you something. A couple of interesting pictures. If you've ever been to Israel, this might be familiar. This is a siege ramp at Masada. Now, I don't know how well it translates in the pictures, how well you can see this. Up at the very top, that's Masada. And I don't know if you can see these dots kind of up here. Those are people. So it doesn't translate very well in here. But those are people for for scale. Masada is way up there. It was impenetrable. You could not get there. But then when the Roman armies showed up, they actually took the time because they had all the time in the world. They built camps surrounding it, and then they built this ramp. So all this dirt in the foreground that looks like a, like a ramp, they put that there so that they could just go up and overcome all the walls. And eventually, they were able to do that. Next slide here. I think we have the next one. This is a view from the top down 
of the remains of a Roman fort, and they built several of these surrounding the, the mesa there, the mountain at Masada. They were just going to wait them out for however long it took. Now, that's a cool story if you're interested in looking at that. Look at that story uh, of Masada. It's amazing. But this idea of siege warfare, the devil can wait us out. He'll wait us out. He'll wait for as long as it takes, looking for that right opening, looking for that moment. And that's kind of the picture that Job is painting right here when he says they'll, they'll build up their way against me. So they'll smooth the road, and they'll actually build these ramps here. So, again, that idea, just that picture of siege warfare just speaks to me of the devil just, I'll wait as long as it takes. Job 19, verse 13, he's removed my brothers from me. And my acquaintances have completely turned away from me. So up till now, this has been a a list basically of what Job believes God has done to him. God has done all these things. Now he switches to talk about what humans, namely his friends, but everybody else has done to him. Listen how Job describes this feeling of abandonment. Job 19, 14 to 19. I'll read again, I'll read these to you. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my servant women consider me a stranger. I'm a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he doesn't answer. I have to implore his favor with my mouth. I have to beg my own servant. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am loathsome to my own brothers. If you have, depending on the translation you have, it's interesting, verse 17. Remember I said this was written in an old kind of a paleo-Hebrew. If you have uh, the King James especially, but many other versions, that verse 17, my breath is offensive to my wife and I am loathsome to my own brothers, could be very different in how it was translated. That's just one of those that should, it doesn't change the theology behind this, but it's just a, a difference in translation. Verse 18, even young children despise me. I stand up and they speak against me. All my associates loathe me, and those I love have turned against me. So who is he listed here? He's, he, he's his relatives, his friends, his, his borders, those who live in my house. He would, he would take in borders, travelers coming from side to side. It was kind of like an early B&B on the way. And so those in there, maids, servants, his own wife, young children around, his closest friends, everyone who Job loved has turned away from him at this point. He is quite literally alone and not even able to hear the voice of God. Job 19, 20 to 22. I think we have this one up here. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Yes, this is where that saying comes from. Pity me, pity me, you friends of mine, for the hands of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does are not, are, and are not satisfied with my flesh? Saying so just, just seeing me torn down and flesh falling off of my body and my current, can, is that not enough for you? He's beaten down, he's abandoned, he's afflicted, he's under relentless attack from his friends and Job is desperate for some kind of an ally. I believe, here's where things change. I believe in that moment, this is where Job receives a direct revelation from God. 
Maybe the first time he's heard from God in a long time. And I believe he gets this direct revelation. The reason I think that is because there is this massive shift in just his, in his countenance and what he says. It's amazing. Now, Job isn't known necessarily as a prophet, um, but he does get this revelation, I believe. Again, Scripture doesn't show that, but you can see the evidence of this happening. He gets this revelation of what is to come. Now, that is something that we have available to us today through the Holy Spirit. And there's a difference between individual words of prophecy or individual words of knowledge and corporate ones. There's a big difference. I won't get into that. Jackie Jacobson is actually an expert on that prophetic world and, and gifts, and she'll be speaking on that in a couple of weeks. If that's something you're interested in, I really urge you to join us. February 21st, it's going to be amazing. But speaking of amazing, here's where Scripture gets amazing. Listen to this or read it on screen. Job 19, 23 and 24. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were recorded in a book, that with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Job's like, I wish, I wish my words would last through eternity because I want future generations to be able to see this and judge for themselves. And people could learn from this. Well, we know that he gets his wish. It's amazing. So the imagery right there is actually not necessarily imagery. It's pretty literal. Papyrus existed at that time, but it would have been really rare. It would have been something that not the average guy had. And certainly papyrus didn't tend to last very long. What Job was talking about here was either they would take lead and they would pour it out in a, in a flat sheet, kind of find the flattest rock or piece of shale they could, pour molten lead on that, and that made kind of a flat sheet. Then they would take an iron stylus and actually carve into that, and it would last It would last pretty long. The other thing they could do, they would take a stone tablet and carve into it. You've seen those kinds of things, right? And then they would fill the letters with molten lead. And that way it would last longer, kind of a relief. We have a couple images here I want to show you. The first one, this is a a Moabite stone tablet. It's from 900 B.C. So not quite as old as Job, but the theory is the same. And that's that's about... four feet high or so. And I know the letters are, here's a close-up of it. <clears throat> this is the letters chart again, 900 BC. And they didn't do that on this one, but you can see what they would do is they'd pour the lead into the letters and thus make the letters last a lot longer. This is kind of what Job is talking about. The other option, here's the next slide, that's an actual lead sheet from about the same era where... Um, uh, they would just pour that out on a flat rock, flat surface, and then take that stylus and carve. So that's just a thin sheet of, of actual lead right there. So that's what Job is talking about in here when he says that, just for those of you who like that, that history part. But now here we have this moment. Now Job's spirit just soars to this incredible height. And those of you who love Hebrew lessons, when we do the Hebrew lessons in here occasionally, you should enjoy this. I hope you enjoy it either way. Job 19.25, Job says, Yet as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Now, even on the surface, that's amazing for for him at that place and that time to say that. But let's look even closer at, at the Hebrew that it was originally written in. 
it opens up some new windows to us to understand this. The word redeemer, first of all, is the Hebrew word goel. And it's spelled G-A-A-L, but it's pronounced goel. And what it means, it's, it's to redeem, but it's to act as a kinsman. Now, I'll have to explain kind of what that means. The goel was the name for the next of kin, typically the eldest son, but it could have been, it could be father if he was still living. Uh, in those cases, the next of kin, whose duty it was to redeem or ransom or even avenge somebody who had fallen in battle or fallen uh, uh, unt- untimely. It was their job to do that or also to redeem someone who had fallen into debt or into bondage. So you could be put literally in debtor's prison or debtor's jail because you owed a debt that you couldn't pay where your, your redeemer, your, your goel, would come and pay that debt for you and get you out. That's that picture that he's talking about, my redeemer. But it gets even better than that. That's what he means by redeemer. We see that instance actually in many different books. The book of Ruth, those of you who like, read Ruth chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. It talks about um, the Goel for Ruth, one of her closer relatives, having to come in and, and marry her and clean up the, the family debt and redeem that family name. You see that. Read that on your own if you want to. That's Ruth 4, 4 to 6. But in this case, Job's sons are all dead. Most of his relatives have forsaken him. Who's going to be his redeemer? Who is he talking about was going to be redeemer? his redeemer? We see a little bit of hint in Exodus, Exodus 6.6. 6. Again, I'll just read this. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the labor of the Egyptians, and I will rescue you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. That word redeem, it's the same thing. I'll pay your debts. But it gets even cooler than that, if that's even possible. Listen to, <laughs> listen to this. The word lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. That word lives is another Hebrew, and it's kai, spelled C-H-A-Y, but it's kai, and, and it's a verb, and it means is alive. Not just lives today, but is alive. And that word, the Septuagint, in fact, which is the Greek version of this, actually translates it literally as immortal. My Redeemer, the one who will pay my debts, is immortal, is what he's saying. It's amazing. And then at the last, the last, and at the last, he will take his stand on earth. The word at the last, another Hebrew word, akaron. And akaron, the literal definition is coming after or the final one means the final one. We see that same word, Acheron, in Isaiah 44, 6. That I have on the screen because I want you to see this. This is what the Lord says, he who is the king of Israel and his redeemer, again that word Goel, the Lord of armies, I am the first and I am the last. I am the last is that word, Acheron, the same one being used. And there is no God besides me. Job knows in his spirit that his Redeemer not only lives then and now, but will be there to stand at the end and beyond. It's incredible. But now, even more than that, he gets into the next part and speaks of resurrection of the body. 
which is not something that they thought about, knew about, believed in at the time. My boys would call this a mind grenade. And I love that. <laughs> Blew my mind. Job 19, 26, 27. I'll just read this. You can follow along in your version. Even after my skin is destroyed, okay, meaning once, even after I'm dead, yet from my flesh I will see God. Not someday, kind of theoretically, I will stand in my flesh and see God. Verse 27, whom I on my part shall behold for myself. I will see him and who my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. My heart faints within me. And it's ended with an exclamation point in scripture. And that, and that my heart faints is just a word of like, I am overcome. I am overcome with joy at knowing that this is going to happen. Job knows that even after his death, he will get a chance to see God face to face. That's exactly what he's saying right here. That is unheard of theology at the time. That, is, they didn't, that wasn't typical theology. Before this, we see Job repeatedly speaking of hearing from God. We see all the time hearing from God or, or knowing his, his heart, those sorts of things. We talk about that. This is the first time that he says, I will see God in the flesh. <clears throat> now, some argue that you can't see God. People do that all the time. But Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, Jacob even wrestled with him, we see. And most probably, they were visions, couldn't look directly at God. Most likely there were visions. But Job foresees in this instance right here, he sees a God with us, an Emmanuel. Isaiah was actually the first one to use that term, Emmanuel. And Job now, he is full of this spiritual confidence and faith, and he actually turns to his friends and warns them. In the midst of their attacks on him, he turns and he warns them. Job 19, 28, 29. If you say, how shall we persecute him, and what pretext for a case against him can we find, then be afraid of the sword for yourselves. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword so that you may know there is judgment. He's like, be careful. You're trying to drum up, drum up these charges against me and come up with something, but you better be careful because judgment goes both ways. So to kind of wrap this up, that's all the scripture in Job 19. It ends with verse 29. But right here, Job, Job was not afraid of judgment. In fact, he craved it. He was looking forward to that day when he got to plead his case to God face to face because he knew he was confident that the charges against him were false and that his redeemer would be the one to vindicate him. He knew that he didn't have to do it. If he couldn't do it in this life, that's fine because I know my Redeemer lives. And he could only know that through this revelation, this steadfast faith in God. So Job, didn't, Job at that point didn't see Jesus, but we know in his experiences and in his heart, he saw Jesus. This direct revelation that Job had to have gotten wasn't really a comfort that was commonly available at that time. It rarely, rarely happened. They mostly had only their experience, their conventional wisdom, the things that they had been taught through the ages. 
But that clearly was not enough in this case. But that kind of revelation of God, that experience with Christ is available to everyone who confesses Christ as their Redeemer today. We can have that. Why don't we? Why don't we go to Christ with all of our questions? Why don't we go to him when things trouble us? I was watching a thing on the news this morning, and they have, they're predicting who's going to win the Super Bowl. I told somebody I wasn't going to talk about the Super Bowl. Here's who they presented as the expert on who's going to win the Super Bowl. His name is Ling Ling, the psychic panda. They had a whole news story about Ling Ling, the psychic panda, and how he chose one of, I'm not going to say which team he chose. Why don't we turn to Christ? We're so willing to turn to these funny, interesting, different little things and put our, put our, our trust and sometimes even our money and bets behind those things and not turn to Christ. Church, there are many Christians today who would say that they do just that, that they do seek the Lord and that they know Jesus. 20 years ago, I'll be honest with you, 20 years ago, I would have said that I knew Jesus. I would have said that 20 years ago. But listen to this scripture, and it impressed on my heart years ago. Matthew 7, 22, 23 says, Many will say to me, this is Jesus speaking, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I know today that I would have been in that group Jesus is talking about before because I knew who he was. I knew some things about him. I thought in my mind I knew who Christ was, but I didn't know him. But today, right now, I can say, not today, Satan, I know who Jesus is. And if you're out there and you believe that time is short, if you believe that there's an urgency to participate in, create, pray for a revival in the church, People talk about revival all the time, and church, I will tell you, I think that this is fertile ground for revival right now. There are people who have just a hunger, and in some cases, it's just a slight curiosity, but it was never there before that there has to be something beyond what I see here, because I can't trust in anything that I thought I could trust in before. And revival just means a renewed excitement, a renewed interest in the things of God. And I believe that that is happening right now. And it starts with us being as sure as Job was, that his Redeemer lives. Now, last scripture I'm going to share with you, Romans 10, 9, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Very familiar to many of us, but it might be brand new to some of you. The Apostle Paul says this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So the question is, maybe it's more of a question, a statement. I'm willing to confess or maybe reconfess Christ as my redeemer. Are you? 
Maybe it's a reconfession. Maybe it's the first time. If you're out there online, you can do this right here in your house. But before you make that decision, let me tell you something. Before you answer that, in the time of Paul, when Paul said that, it seems very straightforward. If you just say it and believe it, okay. But in the time of Paul, that was a lot more serious than we think of it today. In the time of Paul, saying that out loud, especially publicly, which is what declare with your mouth means, doesn't mean like, okay, sure. You declare it. You'll stand up on a rock and you will profess that Christ is your redeemer. In that time, that said that you were putting yourself, you were putting Christ above Caesar, which was against the law and punishable by death. You were putting Christ above your job, your livelihood, your very life. It meant putting Christ above popularity, politics, everything, because it left you open for persecution up to and including death. Confessing that publicly at that time as it does now requires, requires faith in a sovereign God. You have to know in your heart that your Redeemer lives. So I want to ask you, are you willing to publicly confess or reconfess your faith in Christ above all else? Above politics, above anything you think you know, above your life, your job, your family, your friends, your government, above everything else, are you willing to profess publicly Christ above all else? Because I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to do it right now, and I invite you out at home. If you want to do this, if you want to do this, you can. And if you're here in-house, I want to invite you to come up. Are we muted? I want to invite you to come up. And I just, just simply, if you want to, just say this. My name is Bob Oldfield. I confess Jesus Christ as my Redeemer, and I know that he lives. And that's all. If you want to say that, I want to invite you right now. Be bold enough to come up and say that in front of the mic. My name is Craig Carson, and I confess that Jesus is Lord and my Redeemer lives. Amen. Amen. I'm, I'm a all, and um, I know that my Redeemer lives and I confess him as Lord and Savior. Amen. My name is Terry Cooper, and I believe with all my heart, Jesus is Lord, and he lives, and he is my Savior. I'm Julia Rothschild. I love the Lord with all my heart. He's my redeemer, and I know he lives. Thank you. My name is Lonnie Maxwell. The Lord is my savior. I love him, and he is my redeemer and living true to this day. My name is Bonnie Early, and I confess that Jesus is Lord, and he is my Savior, and I love him. Hi, I'm Ava Nelson, and I confess that my Redeemer lives. 
Hi, I'm Melinda Ronaldo, and I confess Jesus is my savior, my redeemer, and my deliverer. He's my everything, and I love him, and I invite you to love him too. <laughs> Hi, my name is Leah Carson, and I confess Jesus Christ is my Savior. He is my Redeemer, and he lives. Amen. 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 My name is Brittany Bounds, and I confess that God is my Savior, my Redeemer, my Counselor, my Peace Giver. He's my everything. Hi, my name is Haley Crutch, and I confess that God is my savior, my redeemer, and he does live. We have plenty of time if anybody else wants to do that. If you're out there online, wherever you are in the world, you can say that now, but it's so much more than just speaking the words. It comes from a place of profession, and the outflow of that, wherever you are, will be that you want to tell others that your Redeemer lives. So be bold. I want to challenge you wherever you are, you, you here in house, I know that many are like, oh, I'm not going to go up. That's not really my thing. And that's fine. But I challenge you to live in that outflow of knowing that your Redeemer lives. Live your life that way. Tell others that your Redeemer lives. It's not your job to make converts or salvations. Just tell them simply, my Redeemer lives. Let's stand for who we are. Let's be the church and let's be the spark that creates a revival in our neighborhoods and in our homes first and then join with other sparks all over the world and create a, rival, a revival in the things of Christ. Amen? Amen? Hey, let's take communion and seal that decision. If you're here in-house, grab one in the back. If you're out there online, grab some elements, whatever you have. Whatever you have, it doesn't matter exactly what the things are, but it's what your heart has to be thankful for. And I want to say this, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, Messiah, Savior, Redeemer, all the names that you go by, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the cross and atonement for our sins. Thank you for your offer of salvation, for eternity, that we can have peace with God. Thank you for offering your body as a sacrifice in our place. Take the body. And thank you for the blood shed to cleanse us of sin once and for all. Take the blood. Father God, we praise you. May I glorify you in my life. May I never, never be afraid to declare you as my Lord and Savior. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.